we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 18. So we've got five verses tonight. So Ephesians 2, verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups one and broke down the dividing wall of the partition by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might create the two into one new man, making peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, having in himself put to death the enmity. And he came to preach the good news of peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Heavenly Father, we pray you are blessed by the reading of your word. In Jesus' name, you may be seated. So these five verses really break into two points. Number one, the reconciler, that's verse 14. Christ destroyed the obstacles separating Jews and Gentiles. And then the second point that it breaks out into is verses 15 through 18, and that is the results. Christ has joined into one body, one new person, both Jews and Gentiles. And we've seen thus far God doing what seemed impossible in dealing with the elect. Number one, taking what is dead and giving it new life. We saw that in verses 1 through 10 of Ephesians 2. God's work in regenerating and creating a new people in Christ by his mighty hand, overcoming the spiritual death of his elect. And then number two, we saw from Brad last week, him taking his elect who were morally far off and bringing them near by redeeming them, by reconciling them. And then tonight we're going to look at God's work in transcending the deep prejudices and racial hatred to bring Jew and Gentile together into one new man, thus giving the elect access to the Father. The first great obstacle overcome by giving us life from the dead. The second great obstacle overcome by bringing us near who were far off morally. And then the third great obstacle by making Jew and Gentile one. This is God's masterpiece. And as we step back and we take a look at the beauty of his sovereign plan, we start to see the divine purpose of these great movements of God. Positionally, we're in the position as believers, amazingly, in the place of God's own son. That's what it means to be adopted. This is sonship, literally meaning in the Greek, son's place. God could have put us in the position of elect angels. He could have put us in the position of an archangel. But no, we are in a higher, more blessed position in the place with his son. The saints of the Old Testament never attained such a position. Even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were part of God's, they are part of God's family. And they're wonderfully blessed to be sure. But they don't have this favored position conferred in them as sons. We alone as saints are not only children of God, but we are called sons of God, as Romans 8 indicates. For as many as we're being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Think of it. We as saints, God has purposed to place us in the same position as his perfect, holy, and righteous Son, in whom he is well pleased. 
This was foreign to the saints of the Old Testament. This goes beyond being just accepted by God, but denotes an affection of the Father in a very special way to this body of saints, giving definition to this relationship between the Father and this new body of elected ones, the called out ones, which God has kept hidden. That's the amazing thing. This has been kept hidden until redemption was accomplished and the Holy Spirit was sent to indwell believers. This is something brand new. Hence, it is something the Old Testament saints knew nothing about. Ephesians 3 records, in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it was now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. Colossians 1 records, has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. And Romans 16 records, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past. So as we step back a few paces from God's masterpiece, we we see a storyline forming in this letter to the Ephesians of a people given special blessings, of a people granted a place with the Son of God, of a people made alive who were dead, of a people who were far off that are now brought near, and now a people who are unified, who were enemies. We have to ask, what is this mystery, Lord? Why is this revelation given to Paul only now, only to Paul, to be revealed to the world? What is this new thing? What is this new mystery that was unknown to the saints in the Old Testament? It's the church. It's the ecclesia. It's the called out ones. It's the body of Christ. It is the bride of Christ who is our head. And what we see forming in the first chapters of Ephesians is the theology of this new thing, the church, which was being built. Just as Christ declared in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Clearly, the timestamps are right here in Scripture. This new body, which has been kept secret for long ages, has now been manifested to his saints. And Christ says, I will build my church, meaning it was not previously in existence. Now, despite the misguided translations of the Bible that slap the label of church on every gathering, every congregation, and every assembly in the Old Testament, there is no church in the Old Testament. It simply is not there. Why? Because the nation of Israel is not the church, and the church is not the nation of Israel. The church, the bride, finds its origins in the day of Pentecost and is still being built by the bridegroom. And it's unveiled right here by Paul. The book of Acts, we've been studying on Sunday morning, being the history of the early church. Ephesians and the other New Testament books being the theology of the early church explained. So what exactly is entailed in this mystery? Why is Christ building this new body, the church? Well, Paul told us back in chapter 1, verse 10, for an administration of the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth in him. In other words, God's will is to head up an administration, a dispensation, an economy, a government of all things in heaven and earth under Christ. And it is with his church that Christ will rule and reign. So there will be united two things, a heavenly and earthly glory 
together united and his son and his bride together united. This is where we're headed. All things will be summed up united under Christ's rule. Heaven and earth is one. Bride and bridegroom is one. Where Christ will rule in the administration governing in the fullness of times, as we saw in verse 10. Isaiah prophesied about this. He said in Isaiah, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. The Old Testament here prophesied of a Jewish Messiah who will reign over Israel in the coming day. So when is that day coming? That day is coming in the millennium, the thousand year reign of Christ. And we know it's not come because Christ is not seated on David's throne. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And it's We know the kingdom has not come because our Lord has not yet returned. Where we will have a literal kingdom and we will have a literal king who sits on a literal throne, the throne of David. And we'll speak more in depth of this mystery when we get to chapter 3 of Ephesians, which is again the union of, of Christ the head to the members of his body, the church, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So what is unveiled by Paul in these verses is the unity within that body of Christ, Jew and Gentile. There must be unity within the body for there to then be unity and union with Christ our head. I mean, that makes sense, right? That the unity had to start by bringing peace to two sides who were at war with each other. So we start with our first point, Christ the reconciler, who destroys the obstacles between Jew and Gentile. Verse 14 reads, For he himself is our peace who made both groups one and broke down the dividing wall of the partition. So we see he himself is our peace. What does that mean? It means peace is a person, the prince of peace, Christ. The moment that we're saved and sealed with the Holy Spirit, we have peace. Just as Christ told the disciples in John 14, peace I leave you with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Suddenly, when we are regenerated, we have peace with the world because our affections turn from the horizontal to the vertical. And we have peace in our soul because we are cleansed from sin and shame. And we have peace from racial, human racial distinctions between Jew and Gentile. And this is an ongoing peace. That's the beauty of it, that God keeps us in. Isaiah 27 records, The steadfast mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. And it is that new peace that allows us to dwell together in one new company. Because as verse 14 says, God has broken down the dividing wall of the partition. And that dividing wall of the partition was like a hedge that separated the Jews from the Gentile world. And this was true literally and symbolically. The temple in Jerusalem had a massive stone wall that surrounded it to keep the Gentiles out. Matt showed us a picture of this about a month ago. And it was a picture of an actual partition, a stone partition that archaeologists had unearthed. And on that, it it was inscribed that any Gentile that was found beyond that partition was responsible for his own death. 
Yet on the other hand, the Jews that walked by that partition and went into worship were reminded of their privileged place before Yahweh, justifying their pride and prejudice against the lowly Gentiles who were regarded as little more than fuel for the fires of hell in the writings of Judaism. Much of the separation was by God's design to protect God's chosen people through laws that would govern their customs, through their manners of worship, through their manners of life. From circumcision to Sabbath, to the clothes they wore, to the foods they ate, they were chosen and they knew it. But instead of glorifying God, what they do? They glorified themselves. Thinking they had earned such a chosen position by their works. We all know the story of Jonah. Maybe the worst missionary ever. He was the anti-Paul, right? We learned that today. Paul was, uh, was very positive, And Paul wanted to see people saved. Jonah was the opposite. Jonah finally goes to Nineveh. He preaches to the city. The city repents, and what does Jonah do? Jonah gets mad. He's angry. He's depressed. He's disappointed. Why? Because Jonah did not want to see the Gentiles delivered from judgment. He wanted to see them wiped out. He wanted them to see the full fury of God's wrath. And this animosity explicit in Jonah between Jew and Gentile went from generation to generation to generation to generation, and it shows up in the New Testament. We see the division in small things like Jesus being recognized by the woman at the well by his clothing. And also when she's surprised when he talks to her, because as the text tells us in John 4, the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But we also see it in the rank racism that made the parable of the Good Samaritan such a scandal. This division enmity was so deep that if a Jew married a Gentile, They wouldn't have a wedding, they'd have a funeral. Because to marry a Gentile, you were as good as dead in Judaism. So how can you bring together a Jew and Gentile? How do you bring them together in union under the headship of Christ? If they're first not brought into into union, into unity practically in the body. For union and unity are not the same. You can tie the tails of two cats together and have union. But you're not going to have unity. To replace the enmity, to replace that festering hostility, the true unity would require the most precious substance in the universe, the blood of Christ, as we saw from verse 13 last week, which read, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So only the death of Christ could bring peace. The Prince of Peace through the transforming power of the gospel. The gospel is the only thing powerful enough to break down the wall, to abolish the enmity, creating one new man, making peace. Now to our second point, the results, as in the results of the breaking down of the wall of partition. And these results are outlined in the next four verses, starting in verse 15, it reads, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might create the two into one new man making peace. And notice in verse 15, the enmity Christ abolished was in his flesh, according, again, referring to his death. But notice Paul notes the law of commandments contained in ordinance were also abolished. So what was this law of commandments 
contained in ordinances. It's the religion of Judaism. It's over. It's dead. It's been dead since the cross. For the Jew and even the proselyte, the religion of Judaism can chase you only as far as Calvary, but no further. It has been abolished. How? By the death of the one who fulfilled it perfectly to the letter of the law. For he was a substance that all the commandments contained in ordinances pointed to. All the ceremonial law, all the sacrificial law, all the types and shadows that pointed to salvation were abolished. Because the substance, the Savior, Christ fulfilled it. Colossians 2 records, Therefore, no one is to judge you in food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. We have the substance. We have the one who is casting the shadow. So why in the world would we worship the shadow in the form of a Sabbath observance or in the form of a Passover? When we are in Christ, we have him who it all was pointing to. Now, I have to say the moral law was not abolished. For the law still has application to the man or woman in the flesh to magnify their sins and show them their need of a Savior. But here's the important distinction. The law has no application to Christians who are viewed as having died with Christ. The law is not dead. It is the Christian who is dead to the law because we've died with Christ. Therefore, the law has nothing to say to us. Just as Romans 7 indicates, Romans 7 reads, So, my brothers, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to one another, to him who who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. So we've looked at how the enmity was abolished, and the law of commandments containing ordinances was also abolished, breaking down the wall, the divider between Jew and Gentile. And we saw how it was through the blood from verse 13 that the Gentile was brought near and that the divide was abolished in his flesh. Hence, it is through the death of Christ. Just as Jesus prophesied in the Gospel of John, when he looked ahead to the looming cross, to the coming cross, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The death of Christ is what bears much, much fruit. And what is one of the first fruits listed in the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace. His death brings peace so that in himself, he might create two into one new man making peace. Both Jew and Gentile finding themselves in a new standing before God. So they're no longer two men, two men, but one man who is altogether new, so making peace. You know, two men may quarrel, but one man not so much. In verse 16, it tells us of the fruit of the cross and might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross, having in himself put to death the enmity. So by his blood, in his flesh, and now through His cross, meaning in Himself, in His body. He has taken that enmity. Because what was that enmity? That enmity was sin, wasn't it? The sin that Christ bore on the cross. 
The sin of racial superiority. The sin of pride. The sin of self-righteousness. And it's only the cross that can extinguish those wicked flames. And, that, and that's why it is only the cross that can speak powerfully to our racially, socially, and economically divided world. To bring reconciliation to former enemies who now are brothers and sisters in Christ in one body. Verse 17 records, He came and preached the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. Here we see a change in emphasis from peace among men to peace between man and God. But this is the good news announced to Gentiles who were far off and the Jews who were near. And the proximity of the temple being the focus here, the temple being the epicenter, the heartbeat of the worship of God in Jewish life, and Gentiles had no place here. So the geographic handicap becomes a spiritual handicap. Alluded to back in verse 12 that Brad covered last week when he said, remember, when it said, remember that you were at that time without Christ, alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But it is the good news that cuts through all of that and, and, and can't be confined to the Jews in Jerusalem and must go out to the Gentile world from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Now the question will arise from verse 17 when it says he came and preached the good news of peace to you. Is this speaking of Christ after his resurrection? It's a very good question since after his resurrection, Christ was only seen by loving eyes and he was only handled by loving hands. So when we read he came and preached good news of peace to you, it may be referring to the preaching he did during his earthly ministry, including his post-resurrection, but more probably it is his witness carried on by the apostles and believers that carries on to this day. Why is that? Because this preaching is by the means of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who is the means by which all faithful men preach Christ just as we continue to preach Christ each week by the means of the Holy Spirit. And and Jesus promised this in Matthew 28 when he said, And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And how is he with us? He is with us by means of the Helper that he sent, the promised Holy Spirit. And that ties in well to our final verse, verse 18, with its proclamation of the Trinity. This is one of the great Trinitarian verses, verse 18. It's true that the word Trinity is not found in Scripture, but the truth of the Trinity is found prominently everywhere in Scripture. It reads, For through Him, meaning Christ, we both have our access in one Spirit to the Father. This is one of those small but mighty verses in Scripture announcing the glorious privilege given to us by a triune God that we have access to the Father. In one spirit through Christ. We often take for granted this privileged access that we have with our gracious Heavenly Father. After all, He is the sovereign, eternal God of the universe who created all things. And yet we can go to Him anywhere, at any time. Good times are bad. We don't need a priest. We don't need a prophet. We don't need flowery language. 
We're told in Philippians 4, in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And Hebrews 4 reads, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is a familial access. It's even an intimate access, you could say. And it's only granted to a father, to a son or daughter. Galatians 4 puts it this way, because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This verse in Galatians is also a beautiful picture of our intimate nature, of the intimate nature of the Trinitarian God working in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, showing us we're not alone in accessing the Father, are we? Just as we see in verse 18 of Ephesians in our verse tonight, we have access by one Spirit, meaning that the Holy Spirit, He's our helper in prayer, continually interceding for us, continually drawing us to the Father. Romans 8 records in the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. And so as we approach God the Father in the Spirit, we know it's only through Christ, through His substitutionary atonement, His finished work on the cross. So our reconciliation, our unity in the body of Christ, our peace hangs on His bloodshed from verse 13. And the substitutionary death of Christ, we see in verse 15, referred to in His flesh. And then in verse 16, stating the way to God, the Father is through the cross. Is that not what, God, what Christ told the disciples in the upper room? In John 14, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And when he says through me, he means through his sacrificial death, by his blood, in his flesh, through the cross. Just, a, just as it says in these verses. Only through Christ's death can we have new life in Christ. By dying to self, repenting of our sins, and putting all our faith and trust in Him. And that's why we're commanded as believers to remember as we gather the death of Christ. His blood shed, His body given for us in the Lord's Supper. It reads, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this, the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until He comes. And we will continue to proclaim His death knowing that his death was a Trinitarian work in perfect unison, in perfect agreement in this work of redemption. As Lewis Johnson put it this way, concerning the work of the Trinity in salvation, he said, all the persons of the Trinity working in beautiful concert, the Son laying down his life, the Holy Spirit applying the ministry, and is the Father who has chosen us, as he said in the beginning, and has determined the whole means by which the program shall be carried out, so that the electing Father, the atoning Son, the administrating Holy Spirit, all work toward the same end, and that is that the people of God may have access. It truly takes the divine work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the only way that we can be blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies through which we've been redeemed and adopted, through which we were made alive from the dead, through which we were been brought near from afar, through which we have access to the Father, and through which we've been unified 
into one body in Christ. And you'll notice one is a theme of this section of Scripture. The word one is used four times in these five verses. Verse 14 states the fact that we are one. Verse 15 adds the fact that it is as one new man. Verse 16 shows that we are one new body. And then verse 18 completes the story by showing that Jew and Gentile are given to possess one spirit. This reminds us of Paul's words later in Ephesians, where it reads, there is one body in one spirit, just as also you were called into one hope of your calling. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Messiah, the head to build one church, one virgin bride, this union of Christ, the head, to the unified members of the body, both Jew and Gentile by the calling and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to form a brand new heavenly body, the church, which would have heavenly blessings and have a heavenly destiny with Christ when he reigns in his kingdom in the coming day. That is the mystery not revealed to the the saints in the Old Testament. They had no idea. They never would have believed that. A unified body of believers who were called out, Jews and Gentiles as fellow heirs, as members of the same body, As partakers together of the Jewish Messiah, they never would have believed that. Old Testament Judaism and even Judaism today knows of only two classes of people. The Jews who were chosen by God and the Gentiles who weren't. But in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul speaks of a third distinction. It reads, give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Do you notice that outside the church we see distinctions and separation as Jews and Gentiles? But within the church, no distinction. The Jew has no advantage. The Gentile has no advantage. They have a perfect bond of unity. One new man. Paul Paul detailed this in Ephesians 1, starting in verse 11. When he used the pronouns we, then you, then our. You remember when Brad covered this. When he said, we the Jews... We also have been made an inheritance. Then he transitioned. He said, then you, the Gentiles, when he said you also after listening to the word of truth. And then he wraps it up with our. He says, when speaking of Jew and Gentile possessing one spirit, one new man sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of as our of our inheritance For Jew and Gentile outside the church, the distinctions weren't erased by the cross. For is the Jewish identity erased because the Messiah was rejected? Is God done with the nation of Israel? Paul would say a thousand times no. The Jewish identity and the Gentile identity is only erased when joined together in the church. That's why we have Jew and Gentile and the church of God. And that's where they, they find, Jew and Gentile finally find unity. And that's where they finally find peace. And that's where they finally find access to the Father. You know, growing up, I remember my dad telling us at the dinner table, because there's 11 of us, and he would say, you're to be seen and not heard. Well, my heavenly Father, he always sees me, and he always wants me to be heard. We always have access to him, do we not? 
So let's go to him now. Heavenly Father, uh, we're so blessed by this, uh, the clarity of Scripture here, the unity of the body. Uh, We're so blessed that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Lord, we are blessed that you called us from the dead and you gave us new life. We are blessed because you brought us near when we were far off. We are blessed because you have made us one in Christ, this body of believers with no distinction. And Lord, we are blessed because you have given us access to you when we had no access and we had no hope. So we praise you, Lord, and we pray that this glorifies you tonight as we study your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.